We'll do a reading today from chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And we'll also do chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Skipping over now to chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. Good evening, everybody. Uh, good to be with you. I wonder, um, does this image fill you with horror or delight? <laughs> Showed this this morning. I think Ali is still getting over the, the, the jitters. Uh, it's Mariah Carey time, of course. Halloween is done, and so the retailers tell us it is now Christmas. I wonder then, uh, how did you respond to Micah chapter 5, verse 2? Is it uh, all a little bit early for preaching about Bethlehem. It's like, seriously, the Bethlehem passage we can, we can get to. Christmas is yet 42 days away. I mean, although I say 42 days, it seems quite close. But it is not yet Christmas. And so perhaps too early for Christmas carols, too early for Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem. Can't we just move on? Now, here is a message from the purists. Here is the church calendar. Okay? And uh, uh, you see that little sliver of white in between sort of the end of December, the beginning of January, that's Christmas, the period of the calendar known as Christmas. It begins, wouldn't you know it, on Christmas Day, on the 25th of December. And it goes until, uh, well, it goes for 12 days, just like the song, um, uh, and until the 6th of January, which is Epiphany, which is the celebration of the visit of the wise men, the Magi. And that's Christmas. So if you want to know when do we sing Christmas carols? When do we put up the Christmas decorations? When do we take the Christmas decorations down? The answer is during Christmas. 12 days, 25 December, 6th of January. Now, if you like, 
you can put up your tree at the beginning of Advent. That's that purple period. Um, around the beginning of December is the four-week period leading up to Christmas. But you can't decorate your tree yet because Advent is a time of repentance. It's a time of, of uh, uh, lamenting our sin, recognising the absence of God, looking forward to what is to come but realising that we're not yet in the kingdom to come and so we, we repent, we grieve our, over our sin, we look forward to having a saviour and then you get to decorate the tree on Christmas Eve so it can be all bright and shiny for Christmas Day. You've got 12 days to enjoy it and then you take it down. <laughs> I can see that didn't really land. Uh, all the traditionalists, and maybe there's like one or two traditionalists in the room, you're sort of cheering quietly within saying, you know, yes, if we're going to do it, can we do it right? For the non-traditionalists in the room, you'll be glad to know this is not the main point of tonight's sermon. Uh, we are preaching through the book of, of Micah and as Ta Tash said, we, we do this strange thing, listening to this preacher from two and a half thousand years ago on the other side of the world and we listen to what God said through him to God's people back then because we believe that by overhearing that message we get to hear what God is saying to us, to his people and to his world now. Today we come to chapters 4 and 5 and we hear in these chapters a message of hope for a world in the midst of war. Uh, we hear a call to peace and the promise of God. So I wonder, is there anyone here who lives in a world of violence and war? Anyone here who lives in a world in need of peace and hope? Anyone? Then let's listen in. I have, however, taken a bit of a Christmas theme um, to this sermon, uh, not inspired by the Maya Christmas windows, but inspired by Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, for the first point, Kat, when should you sing Christmas carols? All year round. All year round. That is the first point. Christmas carols aren't just for Christmas. You know, through uh, Micah so far, apart from that brief respite at the end of chapter 2, it's been pretty grim the message that the prophet has had. But now we come to chapter 4 and 5 and there is a stark contrast. And, and here particularly we get two of the most hope-filled passages of the Old Testament, certainly two parts of Micah that are most well-known in offering this vision of hope for the future. And the first we read from chapter 4, this vision of world peace. This, this vision is so good that Isaiah copied it and he wrote it in chapter 2 of his book or maybe Micah copied Isaiah or maybe both of them copied somebody else or maybe they just both got the same inspiration from God. Either way, this is a passage that's worth saying at least twice, if not more often. If you go to the United Nations headquarters in New York, uh, across the road inscribed on a wall is this prophecy quoting from Isaiah, but the same words here in Micah, a vision of peace and prosperity and security. A vision of world peace. People will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, agricultural equipment instead of weapons of war. Nations won't take up the sword against each other. They will not train for war anymore. It will be a time of peace. 
It will be a time of prosperity. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree. There will be a time of security. There will be nothing to fear. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. It's a glorious vision. Where does that peace come from? Well, we need to work backwards from uh, the, the end of Micah's vision. Go to the first part of verse 3 and the source of this peace, well, essentially it's let's replace the UN Security Council with God himself. God will judge and settle disputes. God will rule. That it will be God himself who brings nations to the peace table. God himself who will bring the end to hostility between nations. And so we see when, when Micah says that people are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that's not the prelude to peace, that's the result of peace. It's like, what am I going to do with my sword? <laughs> I have no need of my sword. I might just make it into agricultural equipment instead. Peace will come because God will rule. And God rules because people repent. Verse 2 we see a change of vision, a change of mind and a change of direction. A change of vision. The nations of the world uh, no longer look to themselves and puff themselves up and instead they say, no, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. A change of vision, a change of mind. Come, let's be taught by God that we might learn from him. And a change of direction that we might walk in his ways, do the things that God calls people to do. And this will happen because God's presence will be revealed to the world. Uh, Mount Zion, um, uh, the temple uh, mount in, uh, in Jerusalem, is the hill on which the temple was built. And that's what ancient people did. Uh, it's what uh, people continue to do. So in Australia, if you go to pretty much every country town, uh, the, uh, of the settlers, it was the Anglicans who got there first and stole the best land and put their church on the top of the hill. And they did that in, in Jerusalem. They put the temple on the top of the hill. But Mount Zion is not a... It's a punty hill. The, the Mount of Olives is a much more impressive hill. That's right next door to it. But in Micah's vision, the, the temple of the Lord will become the loftiest of all mountains. That is that God's presence will become the focus of the world's attention. God will reveal himself to the world. And when will this happen? Well, Micah says, in the last days. In the last days. To Micah's uh, generation, he's saying, look forward, look forward to this great time of peace because in the last days, all this will happen. Of course, it raises the question for us, um, is that in, still in our future or is it perhaps already in our past? Well, that brings us to our second passage. Our reading from chapter 5, verses 1 uh, uh, to 4. And here in this, these two passages, we get a prophecy of a ruler. I wonder, does this remind you of anyone? They're from Bethlehem. They have origins from ancient times. He'll be a shepherd who will serve with the strength and majesty of God, who will bring security and peace to the ends of the earth. It's not hard to see, is it, why Matthew 
quotes this passage in relation to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. When the wise men come to Herod, they quote this passage. And it's this passage that leads them to the town of Bethlehem and to the birthplace of Jesus. So has this vision of Micah been fulfilled already? Well, yes. Because the leader that God had promised, the Lord Jesus, has come. And yet, no, because the promises of peace that Micah set before us have not yet been fulfilled. Now, since the promises of the Old Testament, they're a bit like um, uh, driving in, in uh, sort of, you know, regional Australia, and you're driving along and you see a building up ahead. And as you uh, come towards this building, uh, you might begin to see that, oh, actually, it's not just one building, this is actually a string of buildings, this is actually a town. And you enter the town and you can now look back to the beginning of the town and still look forward to the town uh, uh, end maybe only two or three blocks down the road, but still, you know, there's still more town to come. And that's what the Old Testament promises are like. That from Micah's perspective, he looks forward and he sees this single, what seems to him like a single event. There is this day, a time that's going to come when there will be great world peace because God's ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. And we travel along that road and we find ourselves uh, being able to look back and see the beginning of uh, those days in the coming of Jesus. And yet we still look forward to the fulfilment of the global peace that we so long for. The point is this, we still look forward in hope. We still live in a world that is very much like the world that Micah lived in. Over these last weeks, we've seen that Micah lives in a world of suffering, a world of injustice, a world of self-serving and corrupt leaders, a world under judgment. And that's our world as well. And just like Micah's world, so too our world also offers us as God's people alternative options for security. You see, in verse 5 of chapter 4, the people of Israel had a choice. They could either follow the gods of the nations or the Lord God of Israel. My question is, what sustained them in that choice? What enabled them to make that choice? We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And the answer is hope. Faith-filled hope that heard the promise of God And they took him at his word. They trusted God to fulfil the things that he had promised for them. And that's why Christmas carols are not just for Christmas. (laughs) My colleague Scott Harrow, who teaches theology here, he told me once, you know, Christmas carols are the most hope-filled, some of the most hope-filled songs that the church knows. (laughs) So why just restrict them? to Christmas. And so I have a little playlist um, called Morning Prayer and there's about uh, eight songs on it. And uh, uh, most mornings you'll see me uh, walking around the Royal Park Grass Circle 
You might walk past and I will not uh, wave or say hello to you because I often walk without my glasses on and I don't recognise people. You're just blurs. So um, I apologise in advance. <laughs> but often what's happening is that I listen to these songs and among them is Joy to the World and O Come All Ye Faithful because I need hope at the beginning of each new day. Now, you don't have to listen to Christmas carols <laughs> uh, every day. But we do need to maintain hope by repeating the promises of God over and over again. We live in a world with alternative offers of security and they're not shy about offering to us their vision of the good life. Whether it's the vision of finding security and having enough superannuation or the invitation to find power by joining the right political party or the offer of pleasure by having your pick as sexual partners or finding fulfilment by going on the very best of holidays or finding significance by choosing your own life path. Whatever it is, there are alternatives on offer. So we come to church week after week so that we might hear the gospel, the promises of God, the hope-filled promises of God over and over again. That we might hear the gospel read and taught and sung and prayed. But what's one and a half hours a week compared to the 24-7 onslaught of our world? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and upon whose law he meditates day and night. And so that's why Christians have had personal practices to read the scriptures each day. It's why Christians have had practices to gather with other Christians during the week outside of church to read the Bible uh, together. It's why Christians have had practices of memorising parts of Scripture, even to commit this grand promise, Micah 4, 1-5, to commit those words to memory. So that might be on repeat in your mind. Or you could sing Christmas carols every morning. And of course, if you did decide that you were going to sing Christmas carols every morning, that would be good uh, because that leads into my second point and that is that Christmas is better in winter. <laughs> now, it sort of pains me to say that because I love Christmas uh, in summer. I've had Christmas in the, Northern, in the Northern Hemisphere a couple of times. It's just weird. It's just, it's cold. <laughs> it's dark, sort of gloomy. You know, this week, anybody else, did you go, get back into Australian national dress? I went to work in shorts and thongs and as I'm uh, wandering around the campus, you know, I'm whistling to myself, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. <laughs> but still, there is something good about Christmas in winter. Let me explain. The message of hope in chapter 4 is a dramatic shift from where we've been in chapters uh, 1, 2 and 3. You can sort of see why that there was a, a, a chapter break between chapter 3 verse 12 and chapter 4 verse 1. 
because the transition is not like that gradual uh, coming of the light at, at dawn. It's more like you, you're sort of in the dark and somebody comes in and throws the floodlights on and now you're in blazing light. And actually, the, the, the sort of the whiplash is even more pronounced in Hebrew because there's a, there's a little word left untranslated at the beginning of our uh, chapter 4, verse 1, just the word and. That chapter 3, verse 12, just runs into chapter 4, verse 1. So we have this prophecy of the destruction of Mount Zion. Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. And in the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established. There's not even time to pause for a full stop between the transition from the destruction of the temple to its re-establishment as the centre of world peace. The point is this. Chapter 4 is not a new story. It's the same story. It's not like that we've sort of got a bit tired of the SBS news and sort of changed channels and now we're going to watch a rom-com on Netflix. No. The Micah who preaches so boldly about this world full of peace is the same prophet who has been preaching so boldly about a world filled with war. That's the message of this book. It's not just there is hope. It's not even there is hope instead of darkness or there is hope in the middle of darkness. No, the message is there is hope through and on the other side of darkness. Salvation comes through suffering. Chapter 4 verses 1 to 8 is this glorious vision of future hope, of peace and prosperity and security. But if you have your Bible uh, there or it's on the screen, go to uh, uh, verses 9 to 10 that follows. It reminds uh, people that the last days are not yet fulfilled. Because yes there is this promise but the suffering remains. There is crying to come. The king will be removed. God's people will still writhe in agony. They will be exiled. Later in chapter 5, we read that again they'll be under siege. Again, the enemies of God's people will invade their land. There, There remains suffering despite the promise. Micah's message is that salvation comes through suffering and that's a theme that we hear over and over again in the Bible. Salvation through suffering and of course that prepares us to understand the salvation that comes in the Lord Jesus. Jesus doesn't just come to replace death with life. Jesus comes to suffer death in our place. To conquer death, to defeat death through death. so that we might know the glory of his triumph in the resurrection. And that promise of salvation is the same, it's true also for us. In Acts chapter 14, uh, Luke summarises Paul's preaching. Paul has been uh, going through um, uh, various towns, the different churches that he has previously preached to. And in chapter 14 verse 22, Luke summarises his message by saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's the Christian journey. 
It's what Jesus said. Whoever wants to come and follow me must deny himself and take up our cross to follow him. So that's my point. God's people have always sung songs of hope in the midst of darkness. And that's why Christmas is better in winter. It's easy, isn't it, to be filled with feelings of peace and joy and hope when it's summer, finally, perhaps, maybe next week. But, but soon it will be summer, in, even in Melbourne. And your marking's done and there's holidays to come. And The challenge is, when your alarm goes off in the middle of July, it's still dark. It's four degrees outside and it's raining and you're tired. There's no holidays in sight. On those days, can we still say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's the challenge of the Christian faith and the invitation of it. To live in a world of violence and war and suffering and the weight of grief and to still boldly stand and say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. To say with Paul in Romans 8 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. To find hope, even when there are no visible signs of hope. So would we endure hardship? Would we not sacrifice obedience for the sake of convenience? Would we continue to speak God's promises in the dark, to find hope when there are no visible signs of hope. We might even sing Christmas carols in the middle of winter. So Micah calls God's people to be a community of hope and to be a community of hope in the midst of a world that seems hopeless and thirdly, to be a community that brings hope by working toward God's good promised future. Which is my third Christmas-themed point, that Christians are like nativity scenes. Christians are like nativity scenes. Come with me to chapter 5 and verse 7. Micah has two descriptions of the remnant of Israel. The remnant means the people left behind, those who continue to be faithful. They remain faithful to God. And these faithful people are going to be scattered among many nations. And Mikey uses two sort of strange metaphors to describe this people. They're like dew and they're like lions. They're like dew, that, that, that um, uh, water that sort of forms on the, on the grass as the moisture from the air sort of condenses uh, in the morning. And then verse 8, like a lion among the beasts of the forests, mauling and mangling these defenceless sheep. What the heck is going on there? There's one commentator that uh, was particularly helpful. 
He says, God's people will be an unstoppable blessing. Like dew, there's unobtrusive, hardly noticed and yet extremely effective and like lions, invincible agents of God's justice. And at our best, that has been the story of the church. There's lots to say about what the church has been like at their worst. That's for another time. But at our best, the Spirit of God has been at work through his people like dew, bringing blessing invincibly through the centuries. Micah says to the people of Israel, as God says to us, don't lose hope. Keep working toward God's good promised future. We don't just sit and wait. We fight for that justice that God has promised will come. But we do that not with the demand, the load on our shoulders that we're the ones that need to accomplish this because it's God who is going to accomplish it. God has promised and we in freedom get to work toward peace and justice. And that's the promise even for us as Christian people, the invitation to us as Christian people. Even in the midst of darkness, we live scattered in the midst of many peoples and we work for peace. We work to bring blessing, we work to bring God's justice, God's invincible, unstoppable love that has been won for us in Christ Jesus. We participate now in this victory that Jesus has won and show the world the light and love and life of Christ even in the midst of the ordinariness of human life. And that's a nativity scene. You know, the first nativity scenes traced back to the 4th century in the ruins uh, of Rome. There are the traditional nativity scenes. There's the contemporary traditional scenes. And then there's the nativity scenes that could be a silhouette of Mary and Joseph at the manger or could be two dinosaurs fighting over who gets to use the circular saw. (laughs) But the point of a nativity, the point of a nativity is to bring the story of Jesus to be a reality in our lived experience. Not just something we hear, but something we see, something that we can inhabit. It's a Roman Catholic prayer, often said as a a nativity scene is uh, set up and, and blessed. Bless us as we look upon this manger. May it remind us of the humble birth of Jesus and raise our minds to contemplate the awesome mystery of God made flesh. Wouldn't that be a great prayer to pray for one another? So that as the church, as Christians, live our lives, our ordinary lives in the midst of our friends and neighbours and family and colleagues, we pray that as they look upon us, that they would be reminded of the humble birth of Jesus. We pray that by seeing our lives, it would raise people's minds to contemplate the awesome mystery that God would become human and through him God would bring life and hope to the world. 
what I'm hearing from God as I read Micah chapter 4 is that we could be a living nativity if we were to sing Christmas carols all year round, especially in the middle of winter. Or in other words, that we as God's people could be a community of hope. Not the sort of hope that just shuts our eyes and denies, ignores the harsh realities of the world, but a community full of hope, even in the midst of suffering. And we would do that by declaring to the world that the power for salvation has come in the Lord Jesus Christ and by demonstrating to the world the kind of experience of peace and justice that Jesus' kingdom promises.